Well, good morning. Welcome again to our online service here at South Suburban Christian Church. Today is the last message in our five-part series, Dangerous Prayers. I hope that you have been blessed by it uh, as much as I have in studying and preparing for it. Uh, over the past uh, five weeks, we've been looking at a Celtic prayer, uh, a dangerous prayer, believing that when we pray, God will answer our prayers and uh, preparing ourselves, our hearts and our minds, uh, for that answer God's going to bring to us. If you would, let us prepare our hearts and minds as we uh, go into this final message today by praying together this Celtic prayer, this dangerous prayer. Lord of our heart, give us vision to inspire us, that working or resting we may always think of you. Lord of our heart, give us light to guide us, that at home or abroad we may always walk in your way. Lord of our heart, give us wisdom to direct us, that thinking or acting we may always discern right from wrong. Lord of our heart, give us courage to strengthen us, that amongst friends or enemies we may always proclaim your justice. Lord of our heart, give us trust to console us, that hungry or well-fed we may always rely on your mercy. Amen. You know, I've shared with you before uh, that one of my favorite, if not my very favorite prophet, is the prophet Jeremiah. Now, now don't get me wrong. Uh, the last thing I want is my ministry to wind up like Jeremiah's ministry. I never pray, Lord, help me be as effective as Jeremiah. For if you were to measure Jeremiah's ministry uh, based on how many people he brought to conversion... Uh, it, it, he would have failed miserably. Matter of fact, he only, throughout his 40 years of ministry, only had two people uh, who came to believe his message about God. Uh, one was a guy named Baruch, and the other one was uh, a guy named Ebed-Melech. Uh, he was an Ethiopian eunuch in the king's court. Um, if I looked at Jeremiah's ministry based on how effective he was in helping to change uh, the spirit of worship at the temple, uh, how he might have called the religious leaders, the priests, and the scribes uh, to a greater and deeper faith in the one true God, he failed miserably. If you were to look at Jeremiah's uh, uh, ministry as to how effective he was in transforming uh, the government, uh, the monarchy, uh, to be more closely aligned to God's design for the rule of law, how he might have impacted the nation's moral conscience of his time, then it, the, the, the results are in. Jeremiah is by far the worst preacher in the history of humanity. And yet, on the pages of the book that he wrote that bears his name, the book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament, we see an account of his life from when he was called into ministry all the way to the very end of his ministry. And although the Bible doesn't tell us uh, how Jeremiah died, the church uh, remembers in its tradition that after the fall of Jerusalem uh, to the Babylonians, Jeremiah went to Egypt, and there uh, he came upon some of his countrymen who had also fled Jerusalem during the invasion, and they killed him. <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, Jeremiah is not one whom I want to emulate my life and ministry after. And at the same time, in the pages of his book, 
we see the struggles, the pain, uh, the shame, the guilt. We see within these pages Jeremiah's desire for God's wisdom, for God's vision, for God's courage. Dangerous prayers throughout the book of Jeremiah. The rawest prayer, of course, is found in chapter 15, beginning in verse 10, where he wishes that he had never even been born. And yet at the end of Jeremiah, almost at the end, we see Jeremiah's flowering faith in God, and more specifically for the work that you and I are going to do today, in Jeremiah 17, verses 5-8, through 8, we see this utter desire, this, this utter commitment of his life, this trust that he's seeking to have in God as he seeks to be an effective servant for God, but yet in his ministry, in his life, according to the world standard, it seems that he encounters failure after failure after failure. So if that's you, if you are someone who has uh, desired to have trust in God, but everything around you seems to reflecting that, that that trust may not be well placed, then this is the message for you this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd like to read with you from Jeremiah 17, verses 5 through 8. I'm going to read today, uh, I normally read from the English Standard Version, but today I'm going to read from the New Revised Standard Version. It's very, very close, uh, but if you have your Bibles, will you follow along with me, beginning in verse 5 of Jeremiah 17. Thus says the Lord, Cursed are those who trust in mere mortals and make mere flesh their strength, whose hearts turn away from the Lord. They shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when relief comes. They shall live in the parched places of the wilderness, in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed are those who trust in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. They shall be like a tree planted by water, sending out its roots by the stream. It shall not fear when heat comes, and its leaves shall stay green. In the year of drought it is not anxious, and it does not cease to bear fruit. Here ends the reading of God's holy and perfect word. May he add his blessings and his understanding to it today. Amen. Well, like I said, over the past five weeks, we've looked at these five dangerous prayers. Give us vision, give us light, give us wisdom, give us courage, and today, give us trust. Every single one of these petitions, every single one of these prayers assumes the absence of what we're asking for. God, give us vision. Well, in, in, in some way, that acknowledges the fact that we don't always know where we're going. God, give us light. That acknowledges that sometimes uh, as we're trying to figure out where to go, we can't even see the road that we should be walking on. Give us wisdom. Give us courage. Well, I think you see the theme here. That these prayers are an acknowledgement that left to our own devices, in our own flesh, our trust in ourselves, there's something lacking there. 
But it's only when we go to God that we can begin to realize the answer of these dangerous prayers. The first point that I want to share with you today is really more of a question. In whom do you place your trust? God says to Jeremiah in verse 5, Cursed is the one who trusts in mortals. Well, you all know how much I enjoy statistics. Uh, as an uh, undergraduate in college, I was terrified of uh, statistics class that I was required to take for one of my majors. And it was interesting that when I got into it, it became one of the best courses that I ever took when I was in, in college. The Institute of Family Studies has done a, uh, a really deep and long-term study on families uh, from the year 2010 to the year 2016. Well, one part of that study, they look at infidelity, specifically infidelity in the United States. And overall, the results really weren't all that surprising, things that we might think anecdotally or if we're standing around the water cooler or the water fountain or, or wherever it is we gather with our friends, uh, we wouldn't be surprised at these results. On average, about 20% of men have had an affair since they've been married, whereas uh, only 13% of women have had an affair. Now, if you break that data down into, into age groups, however, uh, about 10% of men under the age of 30 have had an affair, where 11% of women under the age of 30 have had an affair. Now, that's a statistic that I think all of us will probably talk about the rest of the afternoon. And if you think that folks tend to grow wiser or more loyal as they get older, you need to think again. 16% of women between the ages of 50 and 60 are most likely to have an affair. As a matter of fact, most women are most likely to have an affair between the ages of 50 and 60. And are you ready for this? About 26%, over one-fourth of men, uh, generally have their affairs somewhere between the age of 60 and 70. I know you don't believe that the, those stats. It, it takes a while to get your mind wrapped around them. I think probably it's safe to say that many of you who are out there watching today who are married are probably calculating your own odds, aren't you? And although these numbers are bad, they're a lot better than where we will be in the future. Yeah, you, you heard me correctly. The rates have doubled with regard to infidelity since the 1970s. And the strongest correlations to infidelity among men specifically are those men who did not grow up in an intact family and who did not attend religious services regularly. Folks who have grown up with a family that has been divided, with no emphasis on faith, are the most likely people to eventually cheat on their spouse. Now, if you think about those two significant correlations, and think about where we have been over the last 50 years, single-parent households have increased by about 4% every year for the last 50 years. And attendance to religious services has decreased by about 1% every year over the last 50 years. And that number was accelerating just prior to the pandemic 
uh, both of those numbers, but specifically the attendance to religious services. Folks who study this sort of thing tell us that uh, it is likely that when the pandemic has begun to subside and people begin to come back to religious services, begin to come back to church, we will see a decrease of between 40 and 60 percent overall nationwide. Now, if you think about that, prior to the pandemic, a fourth, only a fourth of our country attended worship regularly, and that number is going to decrease by almost half within the months to come. Only about an eighth of our country will attend church regularly. And those trends, those practices, uh, sociologists tell us, have a direct impact on issues of fidelity in marriage. As a matter of fact, statistically, we are being told that the trends that we're seeing in our culture are going to eventually influence our expectations of fidelity in marriage to the point where infidelity will be something that is not only tolerated, but even expected. I guess you could say that's the real war on marriage, isn't it? Now, this culture phenomena is not anything new that we haven't seen. As a matter of fact, significant study has been done in this area in the country of Russia as it transformed from the communist Soviet Union uh, to the kind of government that it is now. Now, why do I bring all of this up? Because the one relationship that most significantly impacts how we trust is our marriages. That relationship colors our relationship with everything else. The trust that we have or don't have with our spouses impacts the trust that we have in other people, in our government, in institutions. Cursed is the one who trusts in mortals. Now listen, there are some folks you just know you can't trust. I mean, when you get the telephone call that you need to extend your car insurance, you know that's somebody that you can't trust. Or the phone call that I got yesterday that said that there had been illegal activity with my bank account and law enforcement was on its way to my house. I have to admit, I kind of had some fun with, with that caller, that, that, that person who called. It was obviously a scam. It was a fraud. And it was with some sense of relish that he hung up on me. Trust is a huge issue in our culture. Huge issue. 78% of Americans do not trust the federal government. And 64 to 68% of Americans don't trust their neighbors. You know, there was a day when pastors were one of the most trusted people in our society. Today we rank at about 65%. But we're still ahead of university professors, journalists, business leaders, and elected officials, which are at the very bottom at only 30%. I know, I know some of you are surprised that it's that high. A big part of this problem uh, folks who study this is, is, is that what comes first? Do we not trust institutions, the government, the church, because we don't trust other people? Or is the reason that we don't trust other people because we don't trust these institutions? You know, that's the question 
that we will continue to wrestle with over the years to come. One of the most frustrating aspects of this study is that it is quite clear that overwhelmingly the highest rates of distrust in our society today exists with people under the age of 30. That is, is that the people we would think who would be the most excited about the future, the most confident in their abilities to make headway, the, the folks that should have the most trust in, in what tomorrow may hold for them are actually the folks that have the least trust. This sickness, historians will argue, this sickness in our nation, this sickness of distrust in our culture is considered to be one of the significant signs that our nation and our culture is deteriorating beyond repair. Personally, I believe that our culture is probably somewhere in the early to middle phase of decline and collapse. Now, I'm not trying to be prophetic here. As a matter of fact, I'm, 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 not, I'm, I'm not forecasting the future as much as I am sharing what a student of history might observe. You see, we can track these things. We can look at the markers in our nation and compare it to the markers in nations in years past. The historical records that we have of the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Byzantines. And it's not even limited to ancient culture, but we can look at Tsarist Russia, Prussia, uh, today Poland and parts of Germany, the British Empire. And we can see how the social understanding of trust became key markers as those empires, as those cultures, as those nations declined. And we can look at where we are in our own nation, in our own world, particularly when it comes to social and moral issues. What was it God said to Jeremiah? Cursed is the one who trusts in mortals. This is what God said to Jeremiah. The second point is yet another aspect, I think, of what God is saying to Jeremiah that I want to share with you. Because God says to Jeremiah, blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord. Well, for me, that begs the question, well, why can I trust in the Lord? Why is it better to trust in the Lord than it is to trust in mortals? So my second point is, I can trust in God because God is sovereign. The word trust that's found here in the book of Jeremiah really could be translated a number of ways but carries the idea of relying on. That is, you can act knowing God is who He says He is. That God will do what He says He will do. That's the key to parenting, isn't it? I mean, my children are pretty sure uh, what they can get away with with mommy and what they can get away with with daddy. That's nothing new for you. Kids intrinsically know to whom they need to go to ask for certain things. Well, why do I trust in God? 
Well, the psalmist in Psalm 103.19 says, The Lord has established His throne in heaven, and His kingdom rules over all. Now, I don't always understand everything that's going on in the world. I, I know you don't either. And I may not always know what tomorrow holds, but I do know this. I know who holds tomorrow. Theology is really nothing more than the study of God. And the study of God is nothing more than the work of trying to understand God. In many ways, we all do the work of theology. Now, when Paul tries to use mere human words to capture this idea or this concept of who God is, he says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 6, that there is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now, this may not be a helpful way to explain it, but it has been one of the things that has greatly helped me as I have sought to come to some understanding of why things happen the way they do in life and why I can trust God. You see, God creates, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, the, 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 uh, uh, in the writings of Alexander Campbell, the principal founder of the Christian church movement, he says that, that we see God working in three ways. Uh, God is creator, God is lawgiver, and God is redeemer. And, and when God called all things into existence, He not only calls matter into existence, but in His creative work, He also calls into existence time and space, which means He is outside of it. He is not subject to His own creation. He is not limited to His own creation. So therefore, God is not limited to time and to space the way you and I are. Now, that's something that you might need to think about for, oh, I don't know, several decades. But if you can think about God, who is outside of time and space, yet at the same time active within time and space, as Paul tries to explain in Ephesians 4, God is looking at the lay of human existence. He sees it from a different perspective. He, I, I use the example of a, of a monopoly board. If, if we are the, the little shoe or, or the little horse, we can only see where we are and maybe just a few uh, 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 areas ahead of where we're going. Whereas God can see the whole board. He knows where everything is. In God's eyes... The leading of the people out of bondage in Egypt, the crucifixion uh, of Jesus Christ, and you and me together discerning God's word is the same. It, it, the, 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 that, that's why the Bible testifies that thousands of years are, are, are but a moment in, in God's experience. The psalm that I read to you earlier, Psalm 103 19, says, The Lord has established his throne in heaven and His sovereignty rules over all. That's another translation. This means God has the full right and power to do whatever He chooses without any interference from outside forces. In other words, God controls everything. Now, now most people in the world don't really believe this. We may say we believe it, but we don't act like it. Most of us think that God controls some things, but many of us live under the illusion that we are in control of our own lives. From an earthly perspective, from, from the perspective of the, the little uh, shoe or the little horse on the Monopoly board, 
That may appear to be true. But ultimately, the Bible witnesses to the truth that God is absolutely in control of everything, including human beings. Now, when you and I look at the world and we look at the behavior of other people today, we then have to come to at least two conclusions. One is either God is completely indifferent to the sufferings of the world and the problems that you and I face every day, or He isn't really in charge. That's a terrible place to be. But it is the place that so many people in our world are today. Even in our own lives, we may question whether God really cares because He doesn't intervene into our lives the way we would want Him to intervene in our lives. But I would suggest to you that God's sovereignty cannot be evaluated by circumstances or an understanding of His actions based upon our observations. We can't, we, we can't judge God's motive and God's work as the little uh, shoe or, or, or the little horse on the Monopoly board. We just can't see the way God sees. So where do we have to turn? What is it that we can go to? And I would suggest to you that the surest place to go is to the truth of God's Word. And sometimes, like Jeremiah, we have to wrestle with that Word. I think it's one of the reasons I like Jeremiah so much. I mean, if you go back and you look at Jeremiah chapter 15, and I won't read it to you, but let me summarize it for you. Je- Jeremiah says to God in a series of very poetic verses, Why do you let my enemies have victory over me? Fair question, huh? Why does it seem that everyone else is having a great time, having parties, having financial success, and I'm the one that's never invited to the party? How come I try to be faithful to your word, and I'm always the one that's hurting? I'm always the one that's dealing with pain that is too great for even me to bear. That's a raw prayer, isn't it? It's a dangerous prayer. I don't know if I want the answer to that prayer. But God does answer Jeremiah. A little bit at a time, as Jeremiah is able to receive it. Chapter 17, chapter 18, chapter 19. Until you get to about chapter 32, when Jeremiah's ministry is beginning to come to its conclusion. And basically, what Jeremiah concludes is, I simply trust you, O God. I trust God, point three, because the Bible reveals God's will for our lives. I really believe that. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord. When we consider what God is doing in the world, in our life, I always like to suggest to folks who are trying to think about this biblically, faithfully, to look at how the Bible talks about God's will. And interestingly, the Bible talks about God's will in two primary ways. Now, now some have added three, four, five, six, seven, and if you look at those, there's nothing wrong with them necessarily, but I would say that each of those three, four, five, six, seven could ultimately be classified under these major two, these main two ways that the Bible talks about God's will. You ready? First, God has an active will 
or sometimes, as it's called by uh, pastors and theologians, God's sovereign will. That is, is that there are some things that the Lord has predetermined to occur, and there's nothing that anyone can do to change that. Now, one of the clearest examples of that, one of the clearest examples in the Bible for that, is when Jesus speaks to God. When Jesus speaks to God about His will, remember? In the Garden of Gethsemane, when He's praying, just hours before His crucifixion, in Matthew chapter 26, verse 39, My Father, if it is at all possible, let this cup pass before me. But not my will be done, but your will be done. What does the will of God refer to in this verse here? What is Jesus talking about? Well, it refers to the sovereign will, the active will that God has, God's plan for salvation as it begins to unfold in the hours to come. If you go look in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28, it's the scene just when uh, Peter and John have been released from prison, and uh, they, they, they come back to the church, and the church gathers around them and begins to pray in the Spirit, the Bible says. And in the midst of that prayer, they say these words, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. What's all this mean? Well, that God's sovereign and active will was that Jesus would die for the sins of the world. This was God's plan. This was God's decree. There was no changing it. And even the second person of the Godhead, even God the Son, even Jesus Christ, bowed His head and said, Here's my request, Father, but you do what is best. You do what you know needs to be done. That, my friends, is the active will of God, God's sovereign will. Paul restates this truth again in Ephesians, this time chapter 1, verse 11. In Him, that is Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. And the Bible teaches that God's providence over the universe extends even to the smallest details. Matthew 10, 21, uh, chapter 10, verse 29 not even a sparrow falls to the ground without the Creator of the universe taking notice. You see, God's active will cannot be thwarted. It cannot be broken. It will always, always come to pass. Daniel in chapter 4, verse 35 says, He, that is God, does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand or say to Him, what have you done? Brothers and sisters, blessed is he. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord. The second understanding or perspective of God's will is his permissive will or his 
will of command, as it is sometimes called. This could be best explained as, as God's righteous statements, as revealed in Scripture, uh, as revealed in the moral law of the Bible, that we can, quite frankly, choose to obey or not obey. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The will there is his permissive will, his will of command. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 18, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. How many of us do that? We know we should. Scripture over and over again tells us of God's permissive will, His will of command. Honor your parents. Care for the poor. Feed the hungry. Abstain from immorality. Let your speech be that which encourages and builds up. All of these are the will of God. But they're examples of His permissive will. And so, because God honors our freedom, our free will, he gives us the room to choose to obey or not to obey. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, understanding these two wills helps me to trust in the Lord. When we understand God's will and how it works, when, when we see how God works in the midst of the human experience, suddenly I can begin to heal from pain from abuse, from heartache, from broken relationships, from infidelity. Are these things, pain, hardships, infidelity, are they the will of God? Absolutely not. Did we put our trust in the wrong place and that's why we got into those situations? Most likely, yes. And once again, God's word in Jeremiah is proven true. Cursed is the one who trusts in the flesh. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord. Evil is never God's will. In those situations, God's commands were abused and broken. As a matter of fact, there's this wonderful story in Mark chapter 3 uh, about uh, Jesus looking at the religious leaders as a, uh, a man with a shriveled ham, it, hand is, is suffering under his condition. And, and the religious leaders question Jesus as to whether or not he would relieve this man of his misery on the Sabbath. That the, the following of the law of the Sabbath was more important than the, the, the call of this man to be made whole. In Mark 3, verse 5, we read, And Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. I think that God has moved to anger and frustration sometimes, all the time, at human deceit and human sin. Even Jeremiah down further in chapter 17, verse 9, here's God's evaluation of humanity. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. 
And yet at the same time, the pain, the struggle, the cross we often find ourselves bearing is also God's will in ways that I don't always understand. But I can tell you what they do do. They drive me to look at the cross and see that for Christians, the way of the cross is the way of life. I really think it's what Jeremiah was wrestling with too. It's amazing to realize that the God who sovereignly rules heaven and earth is also interested in our individual lives. We're not living in a vacuum. We're not living distant or separated, but we're living in the presence of a living God who has revealed His will in His Word and has promised to guide us through each day if we trust, if we trust and obey Him. I want to ask you some questions as we close not only this time together, but this series together. Because every single one of those dangerous prayers hinges and rests on this final petition. Lord of my heart, give me trust. Have you been living and making decisions with God's good and perfect will in mind? Or have you been trying to rule your own life, relying on your own wisdom to guide you? Are you willing today to yield your life to the sovereign God of the universe who holds your future in His hands, who has your best interests in mind, and who is about to merge your life with something bigger than yourself, the truth of God's existence, His love and redemption through Jesus Christ, and His call to redeem the world. And now, what changes do you need to make in your life today to follow God more obediently? What do you have to allow the Holy Spirit to heal and mend in your heart to be prepared to receive the answer to these dangerous prayers? Are you ready to trust God today? Have you said yes to this question? I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, Lord and Savior. If you're saying yes to that question today, if you're prepared to trust God today, will you click on that button if you're on our online.church platform? Or will you send us an email at office at southsuburban.com that we can celebrate with you and walk with you as we both continue this journey closer to the perfect image of Christ, as God calls us to trust Him in this pandemic, to trust Him in our work, to trust Him in our family, to trust Him in every area of our life. In Jesus' name, amen.